We're going to be in Revelation 4 this morning. Just a a word about where we are before we get to where we're going, though. The attraction and interest of many folks when they turn to the book of Revelation is that it's going to tell us about the world events which are going to transpire in the future. And in some sense, Revelation clearly does that. But John begins this book by saying it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so whatever it has to tell us about the future, it's doing so so that we might... Not so that we would like gaze into a crystal ball and tell fortunes. It's declaring the future as a means of revealing the glory and honor of Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you if you just glance back at Revelation chapter one, verse nineteen for a moment, if you recall in Revelation one, the aged apostle John has been banished to the island of Patmos and longs to be with the Lord's church on the Lord's day and Jesus appears to him in Revelation 1 as a, as a white-haired, fiery-eyed high priest, a sword coming from his mouth, a, a voice that speaks and it, it, it speaks so loud that it, it drowns out the waves crashing on the rocky shore of the island John says, I fell at his feet as dead. And the Lord lifts him up and comforts his fears and declares him to be the, declares himself to be the resurrected, ever living God who determines the destinations of all men. And then he tells John in Revelation 1.19, write the things that you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. And that serves as sort of a simple outline for the entire work of Revelation. Write what you saw, the past. Write what what is right now, the present. And write what will be after this, right, the future. And in chapter 1, John writes what he saw. He received a vision. He wrote about that vision. In chapters 2 and 3, which we've finished looking at, he addresses the current situation is the Lord has sent messages messages to his churches there in Asia Minor. This tells us, by the way, that the revelation of Jesus always has implications on how we live right now in the present. Then what begins in Revelation 4 would fit into the category of the future, right? What is to come is the section that we've come to in Revelation, except we're not quite ready for that yet. Revelation 4 doesn't jump from the the current state of the church in John's day directly to the unfolding of world history and tell us everything that's going to happen. Revelation 4, even as John is told in verse 1 that I'm going to show you the things that are hereafter, right? We've, We've hit that future part of the book, but this chapter transitions from the realm of earthly things to a vision of the heavenly throne room. And before seeing how history unfolds, we need to understand why history will unfold the way that it does. And so before history unfolds before his eyes, John gets this this God of history who is set before his eyes. Revelation 4 presents us with God who alone is the creator of all things, who alone is the ruler of all things, and whom 
the glory and honor and praise of all things is owed. So let's read Revelation 4. After this, I looked, and behold, the door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts, each of them, had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who lives forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat, on the, that sat on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So this text begins with the call of the Apostle John to, to witness the heavenly throne room of God. Now, just, just a word about verse 1. For those who are, are certain that the rapture of the saints happens before the tribulation period, many of them will point to verse 1 as a reference to that. After all, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and said the rapture happens at the last trumpet. In Revelation 4.1, we, we hear a voice John hears this voice that's like a trumpet and the voice tells him, come up here. And it's said that that symbolizes the rapture of the saints to go with him. Except that John doesn't actually go anywhere. He begins verse two by saying, immediately I was in the spirit. John's feet are still firmly planted on the rocky soil of the island of Patmos as he was granted this vision by the Holy Spirit of God. And it's also not convenient that there's seven more trumps following this last trump. And, you know, I, I just, Revelation 4.1 does not appear to be the rapture for me. And I know the argument that I've heard some make is, well, but, but after this, right, this is, this is the rapture because after this you go through Revelation and you don't see the church mentioned again until chapter 22. And that's true, but it's always puzzled me how men who 
reject the idea of a universal invisible church would find comfort in that argument because the Lord has just addressed these local assemblies in chapters two and three, and now it's moved on to worldwide events, and I don't know where we would expect the word church to be used. Now, I, I freely admit I could be wrong. I just don't see how this pictures the rapture. What we do see in, in about 10 chapters, so, you know, 87 weeks or so from now, we do see a rapture in Revelation. We'll talk about it when we get there. But really, that's about all I want to say about that because getting, getting focused on that will, will distract us from what Revelation 4 is saying. I want us to see what John sees. Can you just scan this chapter with me for a moment and see everything? Everything in this chapter is focused on the throne. In verse 2, he says, Behold, there was a throne set in heaven, and there's one that sat on the throne. In verse 3, there's a rainbow about the throne. In verse 4, there, around the throne are 24 smaller thrones. In verse 5, coming from the throne are lightnings and thunders and voices, and there's uh, seven lamps of burning fire that surround the throne. In verse 6, there's a sea of glass that is before the throne. Also in verse six, there are four beasts, there's four creatures surrounding the throne. Verses seven through nine, these creatures are described. The purpose of each is to to declare the holiness and glory and honor that is due to the eternal one who's sitting on the throne. And in verses 10 and 11, the 24 elders on those 24 little thrones fall to their faces declaring glory and honor and authority due to the creator God who sits on the throne. My dear church, this is what we need. If If we were to somehow learn every minute detail of how history will unfold, it will not do us one bit of good until our hearts are set and our minds are certain that it unfolds according to the Sovereign rule of the King of Kings who is on the throne over all time, over all his creation. This is a great comfort to God's people throughout all ages. <clears throat> back, in, back in Isaiah 6, we can only kind of wonder at the chaos back in Isaiah 6 when King Uzziah died. King Uzziah had reigned for over 50 years and suddenly the king is dead and there is this question about the the stability of the nation and how will we go on and his leadership is the only thing we've ever known. And at that turbulent moment, God gave his prophet Isaiah a similar vision and he didn't rapture him up, but he tells Isaiah in Isaiah 6, Verse 1, that chapter begins, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord on the throne high and lifted up. For Isaiah, King Uzziah was dead, but the throne was not sitting empty. John now, who is a, John is a, a criminal. He is an old man. He is a criminal who has been banished by the Roman Empire 
He's being prepared to see this great tribulation which will come someday and unfold. And yet he is being reassured ahead of time, God is on the throne. He has not been deposed. He will not abdicate his authority. Everything we learn in this chapter, we learn in relation to the throne because the Lord God omnipotent reigns. I don't, I don't think it's a stretch to say that that's what we need to be learning from Revelation 4. That's what it's here to remind us. We can and we will look at some of the, the finer details of the chapter, but each one of those details exists to expound and, and point back to this central truth. God reigns from his throne in heaven. He is the creator of all things. He rules over all things. He deserves the glory, honor, and praise from all things. And so let's pick up in verse 3 and we'll see first the depiction of God's throne. John says in verse 3, He that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were 24 seats, and upon the seats I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their head crowns of gold, and out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Let's just stop there for a second in the middle of verse 6. I think right away, one thing that we can do here is put out of our mind the strange stories we get when people start talking about near-death experiences or their heavenly tourism where they got some vision of heaven because it never looks like the biblical depiction of heaven. Nor does the cuddly creator that they always want to describe look like what the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of scriptures to record. In the few biblical encounters that we get, of those kinds of experiences. John, we read, says, I fell to my feet as dead. Isaiah in Isaiah 6, woe is me, I am undone. Ezekiel saw something like this, and he says, and and when I saw it, I fell on my face. Daniel similarly dropped to the ground, and what Daniel said was, I was anxious in my spirit, and I was alarmed at the vision. God sits on his throne and rules with unquestioned power and unparalleled authority. As you know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of what I call biblical visualization, right? Trying to see in our minds the scenes that scripture is describing to us. Let's just admit up front, we're not going to accomplish that this morning. I don't think we'll be able to do quite the job that we would want to. It's beyond our ability to fully comprehend. It's, it's beyond human ability to completely describe. You know, when you look at this, John actually doesn't do much to attempt to describe God the Father as he sits on the throne. And I say, by the way, that this is a vision of God the Father because we'll see when we get to Revelation 5 
Jesus the Son is there, but he's not part of this account in chapter 4, except that it's through the work of Jesus that any of us could hope to gain peaceful access to the Father. But as John starts describing this, he doesn't try to give a a detailed description of the appearance of the individual on the throne. In verse 3, it's simply, he that sat thereon was to look upon like jasper and a sardine stone. Jasper is this kind of translucent crystal. It would be a lot like a diamond. A sardine, sort of an unfortunate translation. It has nothing to do with little fish. It's a kind of stone that was found around the city of Sardis, which is where it gets that name. Today we call it a carnelian stone, if you're familiar with carnelian at all. And it, it sort of varies from, from blood red to sort of a, a, a brownish red. <clears throat> that's it. That's, that's the description that we get. Now, biblically, I don't think we should be surprised by this because Isaiah didn't describe what God on the throne looked like. Ezekiel got a vision and he he goes into detail and he describes it essentially like there's these flashing lights and there's these vivid colors. The Apostle Paul, when he, when he writes in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, he says that God dwells in unapproachable light which no man can see, nor, uh, no man has seen nor can see. So in a literal sense, it doesn't seem like John could gaze on the one who was on the throne, nor really attempt to describe him. Now, I do think there's something symbolic here too, and that is that the, the high priest in the Old Testament had a breastplate that had 12 stones on it, and those 12 stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel. The first stone, representing the oldest son, Reuben, was a jasper stone, and the last stone, representing Benjamin, was a sardis or a carnelian stone. These two that are described, the first and the last one. John MacArthur's noted that Reuben means behold a son and Benjamin means the son of my right hand. And so maybe, maybe John intends for us to understand like if you want to see the one who's on the throne, you have to look at the son in order to see him. John adds that around the throne there was a rainbow, but he says the rainbow looked like an emerald. Maybe this is a rainbow in the sense of a a kaleidoscope of colors, the way that we often think about it, the most prominent of which would have been green since he uses an emerald, or perhaps John intends us to envision just an emerald glow that's like a, a rainbow shape. I do think that we can safely reference a rainbow. It should remind us that, that God rules from his throne and he, he does so with purpose. He, he does not rule in arbitrary measures. He's, he's, he's a God who keeps his promises. God used the rainbow to seal his promise to Noah that the world would not be destroyed again by a flood and he has kept that promise. I also can't help but point out that those who have sort of co-opted that rainbow as a symbol of their God-rejecting pride, they're going to see it differently someday when they stand before him because he is also a God of wrath and he will fulfill his wrath according to his promise. Around this throne, John says in verse 
Four, there are 24 smaller seats. There's 24 smaller thrones and there's 24 elders. They're clothed in white. He says they have crowns of gold on their heads. The identity of these 24 elders, as with many things in Revelation, has been a source of debate through the centuries. The suggestions range from them representing different kinds of angels to representing saints throughout history. And I tend to lean toward them. They are representative of redeemed people. Because when you see how they're dressed, the white clothes, the the victor's crowns, even the promise of a throne in heaven, we've just seen in chapters two and three, Jesus promised that to all of those who would overcome. Those are part of those promises that he's just made in the previous chapters. So I think we can see here that there are those who have overcome and have been given those white clothes and have been given a throne to rule with him and have been given a crown just like Jesus promised. And we'll, we'll see them again in this chapter. We'll also see them again in the next chapter. But John wants us to recognize this is no silent throne room that he's seeing. The awe-inspiring creator king who sits on this throne is accompanied by some seemingly natural phenomenon. He describes before him that there are are lightnings and and thunders and, and voices. We find out that those natural phenomenon of lightning and thunder are actually supernatural phenomenon. Lightning strikes as God commands, thunder breaks over the horizon by his design. The word for voices here in Greek is the word phone, which literally just means sounds. This not only confirms for us that God himself is the creative source of the strongest of all supposedly natural phenomena, it also prepares us for what's going to come in the book of Revelation. When we get to Revelation 10, we're going to read about seven thunders uttering their voices and these kind of thunder judgments are going to, to strike the earth. And yet now we know in advance the source of all things is the king of kings who sits on the throne of heaven. So there's this, there's this gathering storm brewing already and that storm of God's righteous wrath is gonna cover the earth when the son of God returns. And according to Second Thessalonians, he returns in flaming fire and vengeance, taking, taking vengeance on them that don't know God and have not obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Accompanying this one on the throne, at the end of verse five, it says that there's seven lamps of burning fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And there is, of course, we know one Holy Spirit of God. And just as we're about to see in the next chapter that the Son of God is at this throne, the Holy Spirit of God is at this throne too. But we've talked about this term seven spirits before. In Isaiah 11, 2, he describes seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit. And these seven spirits, I think, is a reference to that passage. But remember also the number seven is the number of completeness. So what John's seeing here is like the Holy Spirit in his fullness, the Holy Spirit in his completeness, is there, he's present at this throne. And before the throne, in verse six, there is a sea of glass-like crystal. Y'all, I 
think that there's just a bit too much made about this when I, the, all the strange speculation I've heard of this sea of glass. But the main thought is to connect this back to the visions of God in the Old Testament. In Exodus 24, uh, Moses and Aaron and some of the other leaders of Israel saw a vision of God. And it says in Exodus 24.10, there was under his feet a vast pavement of sapphire stone and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. So back in Exodus, they see before him this this pavement in front of him and and it's clear, You you can see through it. Listen, this tells us a couple of things. First off, the the throne of God is on a sure foundation. It's not on wheels that's going to be removed. It's not going to be carted off. And yet that expanse is, is clear. It can be seen through. The world below is not obscured from the ruler's vision at all. He, he sees all that unfolds. The divine gaze of God observes all that's happening in this world. And he determines the sphere of the existence of all things in this world. None of it is hidden from his eyes. Now, can, can we just say for a second, do you see what is here and what is not here? As John is called up to witness the scene in heaven, y'all, there is not a southern gospel song singing a chorus in the background telling John to look for his mansion over the hilltop. He has not given a tour of heaven so that he writes for us here early on as he gets there. Well, here's what you need to know about heaven. There's, there's streets of gold and there's, there's gates of pearl. His impression of heaven has nothing to do with, well, as soon as I got there, I was reunited with my long lost Aunt Phoebe who I've been waiting to see all this time. No, John tells us, here's what you need to know about heaven. There is a throne And God is on the throne of heaven. And the angels are worshiping God around the throne. And the elders are falling down before the throne. Heaven is the place of God's throne. Nothing that has happened, nothing that is happening, nothing that will yet happen is given to chance. And so we can sing about God and say, yes, the ocean is in his hands and the lightning and the thunder are also in his hands. He shakes the nations and he makes them tremble. He makes promises and he works his will throughout history to faithfully keep his promises. When he promises to preserve the world from a global flood, he delivers. When he promises those who overcome that you'll have a throne and white clothes and a crown, he delivers. We just read, there they are. Your life is not tumbling into meaningless chaos. It is unfolding according to his sovereign design. It is for your good and it's for his glory. God is on the throne and all the created order is under that throne, under his divine gaze. And he is the king of kings over everything. And that's what John sees when he sees the heavenly throne room. Now look second at the description of the beings around the throne. John's mentioned 24 elders already, but they are not alone in this throne room. There are some other interesting 
beings there as well, picking up in the middle of verse 6 where we left off. In the midst of the throne, round about the throne, were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. The first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, the third beast like a, had a face as a man, the fourth beast was like a flying eagle, and the four beasts had each of them six wings about them, and they were full of eyes within. In Scripture, we know of two specific orders or two specific kinds of angelic beings. But that does not mean that that's all there is. It just means that that's all we know. We've already mentioned in this passage places where they're described. One kind is described for us in Isaiah 6 when he had his vision of the throne. And he said there are seraphim. And the word he uses there, seraphim, means the burning ones, and he describes them as being around the throne, and each of them had six wings, and they're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. More often, we read about a kind of being named cherubim. That It was the cherubim who, who were placed at the east side of the Garden of Eden so that Adam and Eve couldn't return to the tree of life. Cherubim were designed over the the covering of the Ark of the Covenants. Ezekiel, in his vision of four creatures with many eyes, he calls them cherubim. What John sees here seems to have characteristics of both of those. Most, Most closely, if I had to narrow it down, they resemble cherubim, but it seems to have characteristics of both. When Ezekiel had his vision, he saw each creature, each individual creature had four faces pointing, one pointing every direction. John's description is that he sees four creatures and he only sees one face of each of them, but they're similar to the ones that Ezekiel saw. He also says in verse six, they were full of eyes, much like Ezekiel said in verse seven, He describes those faces that one was like a lion and the second like a calf and the third like a man and the fourth like a flying eagle. Now, while this is what they really look like, I'm I'm going to be a literalist in reading what John says. This is really what John saw. I would suggest there's symbolism involved here as well, especially in light of the connection to creation that we're about to see by the time we end this chapter down in verse 11. You've created all things. And so of these four creatures, you think of a lion, a strong and an untamed creature. The, the wild animals of the world were created by God and used their strength for his service a calf, or what Ezekiel says in his vision was an ox, but John says calf is strong, but both of them are are domesticated creatures. So the domestic animals of the world were created by God and used their strength for his service. A man would tell us that humanity is created by God, and while humanity might have more wisdom and intelligence and authority, all of those things are to be used for God's service. An eagle... The symbolism there is perhaps the swiftness or the speed or the the soaring majesty of it. 
These creatures seem to represent all of God's created world and each serves with a singular purpose of fulfilling God's design for the created world and what these creatures do in fulfilling that design is they are praising and glorifying him because that's what God made creation to do. They are, as Adrian Rogers calls them, God's cheerleaders. And whatever their individual gifts are by the benefit of God's design, whether it's nobility or strength or speed or reason, they're to use that design in his service and for his glory. They do this, we'll see in a moment, they do it never taking a break, not resting day or night. You know, we have this same calling. We are created for God's glory. And yet in our sin, we've rebelled against him. Paul says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We failed in our purpose. And thus hell is a real place of real punishment, which will glorify God's wrath through all eternity, displaying his holiness and his, his justice. Jesus alone has come in order to appease God's wrath and bring salvation to those who repent of their sins and trust in him. You're either going to glorify God in obedience by embracing the salvation that's provided through Jesus, or you'll glorify God in your rebellion by suffering the coming storm of judgment that's gathering at his throne at this moment in Revelation. You need to be saved from God's wrath, by God's Son, for God's glory. Let's note the doxology of worship at the throne. Remember, the word doxology just means essentially it's a a formal statement of praise, and it's often a lyrical statement of praise. And these, think, these doxologies, they're, they're interspersed throughout Scripture, and some of them you, you already know well from the model prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Or Romans eleven thirty six. for of him, from him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. 1 Timothy 1.17 is another one. Unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So sprinkled throughout scripture, we find these doxologies, but when we come to God's throne, we shouldn't be surprised to hear this sort of super concentrated collection of formal praise. The final verses of Revelation 4 actually contain two different but glorious doxologies. By the way, there's three more in chapter 5 for a total for, for five total. But there's two here in our text today. And the first comes from the mouth of those four living creatures that are before the throne, and the second is echoed in response to that praise by the voice of the 24 elders who hear it. So look at the end of verse 8. They rest not day and night, these creatures representing his creation, to praise and glorify him. They rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. 
This chorus of holy, holy, holy is fitting for God and only for God for several reasons. First off, it just sort of begs for a Trinitarian understanding of who God is. God is three in one. He is thrice holy. The Father is holy. The Son is holy. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit. And it becomes apparent that that's the intent when you look at this doxology in verse 8 and that threefold nature is expressed through the whole thing, right? Holy, 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 Lord, God, Almighty, was, is, is to come. That's the way John's constructed this. But holy, holy, holy is also a fitting description of God in that repeating a word in scriptural culture is to place emphasis on that word. And so, for example, when Jesus is king of kings, we're we're emphasizing his rule. He is Lord of lords. Repeating a word stresses that word and repeating it three times, Steve Lawson says it, it takes it to the superlative level or that is God is holy, God is holier, God is holiest. His thoughts are spotless and untainted by sin. His words are pure and undefiled. His His work is perfect and faultless. His people are called to be holy for the very reason that he is holy. If you have any knowledge of yourself, you know your only hope for holiness is the power of God because you and I have not in our own power the ability to accomplish the holiness that God requires. And yet this angelic doxology assures that we can rely on God's power because he is unlimited in that power. He is not just holy, holy, holy. He is Lord God Almighty. Our God knows no weakness of his own. He is not given to fainting spells. Doxologies often include this praise of God's sovereign power. Jude has one at the end of his little book, and he says that even in the face of our weaknesses, God is able to keep you from falling and make you stand faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. This is the awesome power of our God. Listen, when, when the wicked world shouts at us and mocks us and says, where is your God? We can answer with the words of Psalm 115, verse three. Our God? <laughs> He's in heaven and he does whatever he's pleased to do. But this doxology even lets us know what it is that God's pleased to do. The end of verse 8 says literally, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is coming. The same God who exists in the past before creation is the same God who rules over the present and he is what we can expect in the future. If John's task was to write about what was in the past and what was in the present and what was in the future, well, in the past was God, in the present there is God and in the future will always be God. And yet this term is to come is a a technical term that's often assigned to God. And it's going to be fulfilled at the coming of the Lord Jesus in his glory, which is what this book means to tell us about. If you have any doubt 
that that's the intention of this doxology, then you just have to remember back in chapter 1, John receives this vision of Jesus and as Jesus speaks to him, here's what Jesus says of himself. Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Jesus himself, the Son of God in flesh, is the Almighty God and he always has been. And when he came, he redeemed us by his blood. He reconciled us to the Father. In the present, he has secured us with his spirit. And now that God-man who was and who is, is also coming. He's coming. Prepare for it. Now, you know how some songs are sung in a round or there's a little bit of like call and response sometimes in a song. Listen to what happens when these angelic creatures sing these praises of God's holiness and and majesty. Verse nine, it says, and when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. If these angelic beings have cause in verse 9 to give glory, honor, and thanks to the God who is on the throne, how much more do we have cause to give glory, honor, and thanks to him? You recognize God did not send his son to die for any of the angels that are around his throne. They're thanking him, but he sent Jesus to die for sinners on the cross, reconciling us to the Father through his blood. Hearing that angelic chorus that is willing to sing God's praises and express their gratitude to him ought to have us just burst with gratitude. And that's what it causes these elders to do. First off, they adopt a posture of praise. They fall down before him, worshiping on their knees or more likely just prostrate on the ground on their faces, worshiping God. And second, they take those crowns that it describes that's on their head, the very crown that was promised to them by Christ, and they cast those crowns away from themselves to the God who is on the throne. Although Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus promises those who overcome that they'll receive white clothes and a throne and a crown that promise of a crown, the, the, the Greek word there is Stephanos, it's a victor's crown, like one that would be given to an athlete if they won a competition. It's the same word here. So I think this is who these elders are. They're representing those people who through faith in Jesus and obedience, they have earned a victor's crown. Listen, y'all, what am I going to do with that? It's faith in Jesus that is the victory. Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus has made us more than conquerors. Jesus loved us. Jesus died for us. Jesus bought us. Jesus has redeemed us by his blood. Jesus lives forever to make intercession for us. What recognition should there be for you and me? (laughs) Nothing. And so what joy it must be to give back to the Lord all that you have because you are his alone and that's enough. 
There is no bragging in heaven. There is no self-glorification in heaven. Not one redeemed man, woman, or child in God's presence is going to withhold anything from the presence of the one on the throne. We will be glad to echo the words of Paul in Romans that all things are from him and through him and to him. Knowing ourselves to be the undeserving objects of his grace, we will willingly cast those crowns at his feet. What greater peace we could have if we could bring ourselves to do that now. To gladly give our all to God because all that we have is from him. Here's, y'all, this is what we need to embrace. These 24 elders explain their thinking at the end of verse 10 and end of verse 11. They cast, cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things and for your pleasure they are and were created. The worship of this doxology is based on the worthiness of God to be worshipped. And specifically, the cause for this worship in this doxology is that he is the creator who has made all things for his glory. That word glory is doxa. Creation exists to doxologize the creator. He not only created all things, it says, but they were all made and continue in their existence by his will. For thy pleasure they are, they have their existence, and that's why they were created. That word pleasure there might give us the wrong idea because the Greek word here is thelo, which is, is will. If, if the secretary of state says, I serve at the pleasure of the president, he's not calling himself a court jester who is there to make the president laugh. He's saying, I serve because the president intends, he desires, he wills for me to serve. This doxology says all things were created by God and they continue in their existence according to the very will of the God who created them. So they came into, their, into being by his will and they continue in their existence by his will. God's not, as we've said, he's not a watchmaker God who made creation and wound it up and just watches it goes indifferent to it. He didn't just make you and now he doesn't care about you. He made you and even this moment sustains you. And for the elders around this throne, you think, well, okay, God's sustaining me now. I can't wait till I get to heaven and I don't need that anymore. The elders around the throne recognize for all eternity, they're already in heaven, they're already before his throne, but for all eternity, the sustaining of themselves is due to the will of God to sustain them. I know we, we have to wrap this up. I told Randy part of why I was glad he preached this morning is because I needed to preach Revelation 4 without time constraints. I want to make a couple of practical notes about what, what Revelation 4 has to tell us about the act of worship. 
There's one writer, Daniel Aiken, who suggested that Christianity today has what he calls a doxology deficit. We have forgotten that the essence of worship rests on the worthiness of God alone to receive worship. Today, we come to worship service and we think of it as an act of receiving. I'm coming to worship service this morning and there's stuff I hope to get out of it. And if you don't think that's true, you can just walk out and you can listen to someone who you've heard say, or maybe you've said, I didn't get anything out of that this morning. Well, that's okay. We didn't come to worship you. Worship is an act of giving, not an act of receiving. I don't see God casting crowns down before those who are gathered around his throne. They're on their knees giving what they have to him because he is worthy. And in whatever way you can serve the Lord and whatever sacrifice you make as you, whatever sacrifice it is, you're merely giving back to him what he's given to you. You never need to ask yourself the question, is this worth it? Because that is self-focused. The question you have to ask is, is he worthy? And he is. Can I also point out that when you go through Revelation 4, there's this heart of worship and there is nothing there that is boring or routine about this worship. If Revelation 4 represents the worship of God in heaven. Certainly it's the kind of worship that's, that's worth emulating. And what we find here is this multifaceted, colorful, intensely focused, theologically sound praise of God. It is a declaration of his worth and his holiness and his rule, but it's not boring. It's not routine. Part of the reason we need to point that out is because we have to ask ourselves whether singing about the splendor of heaven is really an act of worship. Aside from the fact that, sorry to break it to you, you don't have a mansion over the hilltop, right? If you've been saved by the Lord, you have a room in the Father's house is what Jesus was saying. Even if that mansion was awaiting you, is it really worthy of your worship and praise? Or what if it's a dozen other little things that we think is worthy of our praise? Like a political leader we like, or the country that we love, or a little brown church in the wildwood. How can we sing the praises of anything or of anyone other than the one who's on the throne? There is only one worthy focus of praise and worship and it has nothing to do with anything that was created. It is only the creator. And so let's dedicate ourselves to making sure we always focus our worship to the one who really is worthy, the one who is on the throne in heaven. Let's never place our focus on a temporary gift, but always place it on the eternal giver. He's in heaven. He's on the throne. He's thrice holy. He is the Lord God Almighty. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the one who always has been and is and who is coming. He deserves all the glory and honor and power and thanks and worship 
for he alone is worthy.